You may be seated. Since apparently I'm very much a child of this age, you might not be surprised that sometimes the first place I read the lessons for an upcoming Sunday is on my phone. This happened just last week. We were out of town and I can't even remember when or where it was that I decided to pull up the link to the revised common lectionary on my handheld device, as we modern preachers will do. The gospel lesson can at least it seem, begin to marinate a bit in my mind once I've read it over, even if I can't get around to consulting the commentaries and the other sense-making resources until later. Unfortunately, reading the parable of the dishonest manager in tiny iPhone text does not make its problems any smaller. The only thing helpful about reading a story as weird as this one on a mobile device is that it's very easy to say, you know, I think I'll untangle that not another day. Maybe there's something more fun and less perplexing somewhere else on the interwebs. (laughs) So I surfed over to a site I like called Mockingbird. And over there, I found a bunch of black and white images by a photographer named Eric Pickersgill. The series is titled, Removed. And the photos are of ordinary people in ordinary situations and poses. But here's the conceit. Eric Pickersgill has erased the mobile devices that the people had been holding when the pictures were taken. Maybe you can imagine that the results can be a little eerie. There's a couple in bed together, back to back, each staring in opposite directions at their own empty hands. Two guys in cargo shorts and flip-flops flank a Weber charcoal grill, each looking into his palm as if he either doesn't quite recognize it or has recently set it down into something disgusting. There are four women in a garage, smoking cigarettes, but looking, again, at their own cupped and empty hands instead of at one another. And a man tends a smoker in a suburban driveway as his wife sits cross-legged on the tailgate of their truck, Both of them, of course, are looking at their hands, but there's a third person in this frame, a little boy holding an axe handle and looking directly into the camera. His stare is blank and stoic, and the subject of his gaze seems to be me, as I, of course, look into my phone and back at him. This boy is the emptiness Eric Pickersgill would have erased into my hand. And either my discomfort or the boy's unflinching look seems to ask, so, what kind of attention do you pay? And to what do you pay it? Now, I don't think approaching the parable of the dishonest manager as a story about attention solves all its difficulties. But the question of how fully we throw ourselves into something does seem to animate this strange story, doesn't it? What captivates your time and your attention? On what do you spend your very best shrewdness? These questions can be as disconcerting as the boy in the meat smoker's stare. But before we go to work further on the parable for today, I think we should set it in context. Because this passage is actually a continuation of a teaching that's begun a whole chapter earlier. Luke chapter 15 begins this way. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus... And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. The text says Jesus responded with a parable, but we usually think of it as three. 
First, there's that story about a sheep that wanders off from 99 others, and Jesus says the good shepherd will leave the 99 and rush right off after the lost one and rejoice when he's brought it safely home. Then there's the story about the woman with the 10 silver coins, who if she loses just one of them, will turn her house inside out, sweep every nook and corner until she finds what is lost, and then she'll rejoice when she does. Finally, there's that story about a man who had two sons, The younger son asked for his inheritance early and went off and squandered it in dissolute living. You remember the rest. After getting up from the pigsty he found himself in and making his way home, he can't even begin the groveling confession he'd been rehearsing in his head before his father's wrapped him in his arms and given orders to throw a party for his lost and beloved son has been found. Got it? People who everyone would really rather just keep far, far away, tax collectors, sinners, and the like, heard that in God's economy, the lost and the least are precious and sought after and received with open arms. Even squanderers, maybe especially squanderers, are loved because they are of infinitely more worth than any of the temporal stuff they might have just wasted. And because it's the nature of the one who welcomes them to embrace and to rejoice. Chapter 15 ends with the father trying to explain to the older son who is still seething with resentment that all that he has is this son's as well, but all the older son can see is the injustice of this ridiculous economy of grace. What holds his attention makes all the difference. He can somehow be in the midst of a story of grace and cut off from it at once. Maybe we all can. Maybe we can still stare off into emptiness while other people sit nearby, maybe just as lonely, maybe just as lost, but also just as invited to the party as we are. Well, it is immediately on the heels of these parables of grace that Jesus turns to his disciples and says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. First, you might have noticed there's been more squandering. Same word in the Greek for what the prodigal son did and what the dishonest manager did. Squandered, wasted, perfectly good worldly goods are lost again. One might begin to think Jesus kind of likes to see possessions dribble away from us. But this story seems different. Jesus is pretty clear in the last chapter that he's telling people who the world keeps calling lost that they are actually being sought out, welcomed, and loved by God. But this time, Jesus says he's telling us a story about a life in one realm to teach a lesson to people who were trying to live in a different one. Specifically, he's telling a story about shrewdness over in the realm of dishonest wealth that children of light Disciples of the realm of grace he's been trying to teach about should apply to their own lives. There's nowhere else in Jesus' teaching that I know of where he commends betraying the person above you to save your own skin. In fact, I'd argue there's almost no self-preservation at all in the teachings of Jesus. He's way more likely to tell you you're going to have to lose your life if you want to save it. And what he may be telling us is to turn our attention to the realm of grace 
as intensely as a desperate, dishonest manager will try to save his own skin when he's scared half to death. Which may be why the older son in the parable of the prodigal could be the hinge between these connected stories. What you give over your most intense attention to will make all the difference to your life. Grace can be all around us, but if we're caught in a worldview that trusts in what we make of ourselves, we'll be as oblivious as a resentful son at a party he's been invited to, but can't let himself enjoy. Years ago, a priest told me that grace is like being given the keys to a Ferrari and told it's all yours. But if you can't believe it could be true, and never walk out to the garage and take it for a spin, You'll continue to live in your Ferrari-less world, won't you? I think this is why Jesus kept talking about the saving power of belief. What you believe, what you turn your most intense attention toward, this is the world you will inhabit. Now, that priest didn't actually think abundant life took the form of a Ferrari. Frankly, he knew that Ferraris can get in the way. But he was telling us a parable. And what his story meant was that even though the creator of the universe is a God of grace who welcomes lost sinners and squanderers with blowout parties and wild rejoicing and wide open arms, we can choose to keep living like people trying to save our own lives and paying resentful attention to whoever's gotten something we don't think they deserve. But we don't have to. In fact, maybe the most wildly beautiful part of the parable is that when the dishonest manager gets desperate enough to have his shrewdest attention turned in a different direction, even he starts doling out a little grace, doesn't he? He starts cutting debts of 100 by 20 by 50. He begins seeing his life as bound up with and dependent upon the grace of all these other strangers who might welcome in, him into their homes when he's in need. People he hopes will welcoming, welcome him, you might say, like a certain father who opened his arms with rejoicing, not judgment, to a prodigal child who had just squandered away the last remnant of a deadly old way of seeing and come back to life. 